Good evening and welcome to the show. Well, never mind the Aston by-election in Victoria on the weekend. The most important election held recently was in Berlin on March 26. That was when a paltry 18% of residents voted in favour of a proposal in a referendum to force the city to be net zero by 2030. Naturally, the negative result infuriated the people supporting the referendum, who mostly come from a couple of groups called Fridays for Future and Last Generation. One of the leaders, a woman called Louisa Neubauer, said, quote, There are forces in this city that are doing everything to get the last spark of climate destruction out. You have to wonder why she's so upset. The referendum proposal was only to bring forward the net zero target. Germany itself is still committed to net zero by 2045. Can the planet survive if the city of Berlin completes its transition from industrial powerhouse to post-apocalyptic wasteland 15 years later than Neubauer thinks it should? Catastrophism's track record suggests we shouldn't panic just yet. Here is Al Gore in 2010. There is a 75% chance that the entire North Polar Ice Cap during, summer, during some of the summer months could be completely ice-free within the next five to seven years. And here is a headline from a website about the Arctic Circle reporting that the ice up there is unusually thick this northern summer. Unusually thick, eh? Berliners are not known for their conservatism. It's one of the most hedonistic cities in the world. But even they are not falling for woke catastrophism anymore. This graph of energy costs ex since 2018 explains why. The consensus that people support insane policies like net zero very quickly disappears once people realise how expensive it is. The same applies here in Australia. The Institute of Public Affairs conducted a survey in March last year that found 42% of Australians would not pay a cent to help the nation reach net zero by 2050. 30% say they would cough up 50 bucks a year to help reach the target, and 20% said they would give $100 to the cause. Two months later, in May last year, a survey conducted for the Age and Sydney Morning Herald found similar results, that 40% of Australians didn't want to pay anything to reach net zero. Well, a year later, Labor won the federal election. Although it had attracted only 32% of the primary vote, it proceeded as if it had a clear mandate to carve up our electricity sector and replace it with unproven, expensive, and in many ways archaic technology in pursuit of net zero. Here is Anthony Albanese trying to spin the win into a mandate barely a month after winning the election. We announced uh, last December uh, what our policy framework would be. At that time, we released 
the most comprehensive modelling of any policy by any opposition since Federation. Most comprehensive, eh, Albo? Well, included in that most comprehensive report is the now infamous claim that, quote, an average electricity bill for an average household is projected to be $275 lower by 2025 and $378 lower by 2030, unquote. Instead, energy prices in Queensland, New South Wales and South Australia will rise by about 20% and in Victoria by about 30% from July 1. These figures would have been almost twice as high if Albanese hadn't slapped a cap on the price of coal and gas, which will cost the government, in other words, you, the taxpayer, hundreds of millions of dollars in rebates to resource companies. So you won't see the figure come up on your energy bill but you'll pay for it anyway via the government's rebates. The same report said the government could rewire the nation, connecting urban areas to new windmill farms and broadacre paddocks covered in solar panels for a lazy $20 billion. But given the standard cost blowout of government infrastructure projects, such as Snowy Hydro 2.0, you'd have to say the final figure will be closer to $60 billion. But there's another element to this that is very rarely discussed, and it's the moral one. The solar panels with which the government wants to blanket our beautiful countryside are reportedly made by Uyghur slaves in China. And most of the cobalt used in batteries installed in cars and the battery storage facilities to back up renewables is dug out of the ground by children working for pittance in horrific conditions in Congo. Energy Minister Chris Bowen and Prime Minister Albanese might think they are doing the moral thing by trying to convert our electricity grid to supposedly renewable energy but they conveniently overlook other moral issues such as this one. So why don't they let us decide which way to go? The report the Labor Party produced before the election is fundamentally flawed, so they can hardly claim a mandate for it. Yet their plan to replace almost all of the nation's energy infrastructure is arguably the most ambitious single project ever embarked upon by an Australian government. So here's a tip, Albo. Postpone the referendum about an Indigenous voice to Parliament, which if successful will achieve nothing but create a new class of people based on race with more power than the rest of us anyway, and instead do what Berlin did and put your net zero policy to the people in a referendum. Imagine the mandate you'll have if you get it up. There's a similar push in Britain at the moment. A, a survey last December found that 44% of Britons supported a referendum on whether to pursue net zero. In the absence of a clear mandate from the Australian electorate to pursue this ambitious net zero policy, 
We can only speculate about who you really get your instructions from. Is it globalist meddlers like Bill Gates? Having a proper mandate for this enormous nation-changing project would possibly reverse another alarming trend in Australia these days. We are more divided than ever. Energy policy and the environment are just two of the debates that are causing almost unbridgeable gaps between Australians these days. And they're not the only issues that are defining us. A survey published by the Wall Street Journal last week found that in the United States, people who thought patriotism was very important had fallen from 70% in 1998 to 38% now. Similarly, religion had gone from 62% to 39% over the same time. And only four years ago, 80% of Americans thought it was very important to be tolerant of others. Yet today, alarmingly, this figure is now only 58%. Patriotism, religion and respect are in similar decline here in Australia, and the consequences will be terminal. Prime Minister Albanese needs to forget about the voice to parliament and postpone his expensive, industry-destroying net-zero project until the Australian people have given him a much clearer mandate to do so. And if the coalition was doing its job, it would hold him to it. Because right now, Albanese is leading us into a renewable dystopia that even Berliners are stepping back from. Well, let's bring in one of the most successful Liberal politicians in Australia right now, Tanya Davies of the Western Sydney seat of Badgerys Creek, to talk about it all. Tanya, welcome. Hi, Fred, and hello to all your viewers. Good to be here. Thank you, Tanya. You shot to prominence during the COVID lockdown of 2021 and 22, arguing against vaccine mandates for your hardworking and often unfairly targeted constituents. And the first chance they got in the state election on March 25, they rewarded you with a swing towards you, which went against the trend elsewhere in the state, resulting in a massive 61% of the two-party vote. Now, we hear a lot about the Liberals and Nationals losing elections these days because they're just not left-wing enough. But Tanya, your result suggests the opposite might be true. What's your take on it? Oh, well, look, um, absolutely. Um, perhaps I might just do a quick uh, history recount of my seat. Uh, I was first elected in 2011 and I took the seat which had been held by Labor for 16 years. And I'd worked very, very hard ever since to support and serve my community. Uh, and that has been my first and only priority, which is my community comes first. And so when there are situations in government that arise where I feel very, very deeply and strongly that I do not support or do not agree, and I can see that it's going to be harmful and hurtful for my community, I cannot but 
speak out and stand up on behalf of my community and be their voice into government and even beyond in terms of the media and having these issues raised and aired on their behalf. And I have to tell you that throughout pre-poll and also throughout the election day, um, I had people coming up to me every single day thanking me for what I did on their behalf on my Facebook Live videos and in the in the press standing up and speaking out about the vaccine mandates and also the harsh lockdowns that really impacted my community. Um, every single day, people were thanking me. And as you said at the beginning in your intro, this was going back way back to 2021. So people remember. And I knew that they would remember um, how they were treated and how they felt by the, the former Liberal National Government under those very, very harsh restrictions and those really, really tough vaccine mandates. And I knew that um, I was their voice and it was my honour and privilege to be their voice. I just wish I could have actually shifted the dial faster and quicker on their behalf and on these matters. Well, it brought you into conflict with uh, a lot of your colleagues, both state and federal, and you obviously didn't take a backward step. Your uh, defence of the rights of your constituents was one of the few positive highlights of those two years, I'd have to say. Do you think there should be a Royal Commission into how we responded to COVID? Absolutely. There's no question about it. Um, there are a huge range of issues and questions that need to be thoroughly, fairly and without bias, transparently investigated. Everything from why wasn't our original pandemic plan followed? Why was that chucked out the window and this whole new concept um, of lockdowns being instructed by the World Health Organization adopted by our country. Why were we forced to actually have this injection in our community, in healthy, healthy people? Um, why were schools shut down? Why were playgrounds shut down? Like everything needs to be examined. Um, and, and I urge the governments um, who are in, in power now to actually tackle this first and foremost, because um, there is going to be another pandemic because they always have been pandemic. So we need to learn, we need to learn quickly. We need to learn what worked, what didn't work. How do we communicate with our communities, um, particularly with the multicultural communities that are out there? How do we actually explain? And how do we convince people to do things with science, not with fear, not with bullying, not with intimidation, which is what my community experienced. And that was uh, it was absolutely unacceptable. And it was just a grotesque period um, of our history in New South Wales. But Tanya, one of the most remarkable things about your reply just then is that you were a member of that government. How were you kept in the dark? You're, you're saying we need to know how these decisions were made. Well, you were in the government. Why were they keeping you out of all this decision making? I don't know. I honestly do not know. I'll give you one, one specific example. Um, my community of Orchard Hills is a semi-rural residential, so properties, five-acre, one-acre lots, okay. They were a part of the lockdown LGAs of concern where they were actually locked down. They could not leave their community except if they were essential workers. These are people that live on acreage. OK, their COVID numbers were around the 2025 numbers of COVID. The very next suburb in a different electorate was a residential suburb. So we're talking about houses that were on 500, 600 square metre block. 
um, more dense housing. Um, their COVID numbers were three times higher, yet they were not locked down. I ask specifically the question, why was my community locked down when the neighbouring community had more cases and was more highly dense, not locked down, and I was not given any rational response? So I asked and I tried, but even I was locked out. So still to this day, there are so many decisions that were made that just did not make sense. And we need to understand why those decisions were made. We need complete transparency and accountability for the decisions that were made during that period of time. I couldn't agree more. And the fact that you were you were kept in the dark, even in relation to your own constituents, it seems to be some sort of travesty of democracy, in my opinion. Now, I'd just like to get your quick opinion on the Aston by-election in Victoria on the weekend. It, it seems to be awfully bad news for the coalition. But uh, what's, what's your take on it? It's a very complex set of circumstances down there. Do you think that it's all bad news for the coalition at the moment? Well, if I can perhaps answer that by sharing with you what someone told me when I was just in the party, I wasn't a member of parliament, because I am personally in someone, I have strong values, um, I'm someone of faith, and I asked them this question. I said, does someone like me who who follows a faith and who um, tries to implement those principles and values in what I do and how I live my life, am I going to be at a disadvantage by actually putting my hand up for politics? And this person who I won't, I won't reveal their name, but this person said to the contrary. He said the voters are looking for people that know what they believe in and will stand up and fight for what they believe in. What's worse for voters is when there is a person who wants to represent them and they literally try and put both feet on either side of the fence, try and please everybody and try to be all things to all people. That, that leaves the voters with a great sense of uncertainty. They just really don't know what they're going to get. And so I've been um, very, very honest with my community and telling them exactly who I am, what I believe, and on things where there's been national debate and national legislation change in, in, in certain areas, let's say same-sex marriage, I was very upfront with my community and I had a number of discussions with people who, who voted for that change of legislation. And at the end of the day, I said, look, we agree to disagree on this issue, but I want to tell you that if I am your Member of Parliament, you can come to me. Even though I know we disagree on this issue, my, my role is to serve you, to serve everybody in my community, even if we disagree on things. And I think fundamentally that's what people, they, they want to have. They want to know what they're getting if they vote for you, but they also want to know that even if they disagree with you on certain issues, that you are still going to be there helping and supporting and serving them with the needs that they have. Well, it's interesting that you bring the, uh, the issue of faith and principles up because we are living through a fairly uncertain time, Tanya. As you probably know, it's almost understandable that conservative parties might be a little lost at the moment because, as I said earlier in the show, there was a survey published last week that found in the United States that patriotism, religion and the importance of family have all dramatically declined in the past 25 years. In some cases, they are half as important as they were in 1998. Now, there's actually little sign that these trends are likely to change as well. Do you think the same trends apply here? And perhaps that's 
contributing to the confusion that conservatives have these days? Um, I, I don't have a doubt about it at all. It's certainly something I'm seeing across my community indeed, but uh, I think even more so we need to um, prosecute the importance of those values that our nation was founded on, the West was founded on, and explain to our younger generation how vital they are to establishing a democracy whereby the individual is valued, whereby we respect everyone regardless of their personal beliefs or backgrounds, where everybody gets a chance to be their personal best, where we help everyone who needs help, whether it's a permanent situation or just a transient situation. These are the values and, and the fundamental principles that come from a judo-Christian basis. And um, our systems of law, our systems of justice, um, helping others in crisis, it all stems from that basis. And I think there's been a great effort to remove the link between the benefits of a Western civilization from where those benefits come from. There's been a real effort in our education system to actually sever the link so that people don't understand how vitally important it is to maintain those ethics and those values that come from the judo-christian um, basis of our nation and so i think we have an obligation to to teach our young people where where we get our democracy from and where do we get our values and and i guess the framework for our society where that comes from and also to show them the other countries that do not have that as a framework for their society and point to them and see let them see how actually how problematic that becomes, how um, despots can rise, how people can get mistreated um, in those situations, how the fundamental values of, of a human life are just dis discarded. So we need to show them the values, where they come from, why they're so important to, to keep. Of course, respecting everyone's wishes as to how they choose to live their own personal life, that's without question. But the basis and framework for our society um, needs to be taught and where that comes from and also show them, well, what happens in other countries when you remove that? And mm. is that where you really want to go as a country? Indeed. I don't think there's any doubt that uh, individualism uh, isn't emphasised in Western societies these days, but it seems to be the only thing we value. Uh, there isn't any effort, especially in our education system, to encourage a sense of uh, community, uh, civic uh, responsibility and indeed a, a spiritual um, guidance that may or may not be religious. I mean, well, in the in the absence of religion, we as we've seen, uh, what steps in is things like um, identity politics and the environment. So yeah, and I agree with you on individualism, but the other two have certainly fallen by the wayside, haven't they? Mm. Mm. Without a doubt. Um, and I think you're you're right in the sense of um, the the desire and and I guess the ingrained social awareness of service to one's community is really evaporating at a very fast rate. Certainly across my community in Western Sydney, I speak with a lot of volunteers, mostly in sports groups, uh, football, netball, cricket, you name it, and and they're saying like we we like I'm I'm president again or. I put my hand up for treasurer again because there's nobody else there. And they're just saying this over and over and over again that that the, that the lack of serving and giving of yourself to your fellow community is really falling away and, and that's a, a huge concern. And for my husband and I, we, um, 
we have strongly encouraged our daughter to participate in the Duke of Edinburgh program, which runs at her school. And that has a fundamental tenet, which is about community service. And, and we're strongly encouraging her to do that because it teaches her other parts of our society, our local community that she would otherwise not see and not touch and not experience. Because I want to instill in her and later on our younger son how important it is to serve. And, and that's what we can do. And I think there's an opportunity here for, for governments to actually step in and drive these, these programs that teach our young people the value and the significance of community service and of helping one another, not just when a crisis happens. Of course, Aussies are great at that, you know, massive bushfires or floods or whatever it could be. We're great at seeing a crisis, but that consistent, regular, ongoing service to help support communities, it needs to really be raised in profile and driven by leaders within our community. Well, speaking of leaders, you've thrown your hat in the ring for the deputy leadership of the Liberal Party in New South Wales, uh, which I think a lot of uh, true conservatives will be very encouraged by. What are the odds of you winning that position and how will you shape the party? Uh, look, at the end of the day, um, I, I, I really do now believe I have something significant I can add to my colleagues and add to the party as a whole. Um, I think, you know, if I'm being honest, um, I really just only had a view of serving my community and that was, I guess, as far as my vision went. But after the week weekend's election result, when I saw, I guess, the community's endorsement of, of my, my action, I took um, not only on policies that came through under the last um, government, abortion, euthanasia, but also during COVID, I thought to myself, wow, maybe my voice and, and what I see and my passion actually can be of even greater service. And so I felt really encouraged by that election result and therefore I, I have put my hand up for deputy leader. And at the, But at the end of the day, it's up to my colleagues in the party room as to who they vote for, for leader and deputy leader. And so while I'm, I'm, I'm doing, you know, the phone calls and checking in on people, even my colleagues who haven't won their seat, I'm checking in on them as well. I'll leave it to the party room to decide um, who they want to lead them. Well, but in Tanya, terms of carry on, go on. Beyond go on. that, there's a, there's a lot to do. There's a lot to do in the Liberal Party. There is indeed. There's a lot to do in Australia. I hope the party room yeah. does decide, and they decide well without the influence of the factions that we all know are causing too much disruption in the Liberal Party these days. Tanya Davies, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Fred. That's Tanya Davies, the Liberal MP for the state seat of Badgerys Creek in Western Sydney and one of the most successful Liberal politicians in Australia right now. Who knew that adhering to principles could be so popular with voters? Well, that's all from me tonight. Thanks for watching. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can find me at, at Fred Paul, that's F-R-E-D-P-A-W-L-E, or follow ADH on at A-D-H-T-V-A-U-S. And you can catch all the latest from ADH's rapidly expanding lineup, including Alexandra Marshall, Daisy Cousins, David Flint, Nick Cater, Lyle Shelton, and of course, the great Alan Jones, by going to adh.tv or downloading our app, or find us wherever you get your podcasts. ADH is the new home for common sense commentary, and there's no shortage of things to comment about these days. I'll see you again tomorrow at 7pm. Good night.